Welcome, and today I'm talking to Pamela Brinker about being brave. And it's really easy to say, oh, I'm going to be brave, I'm going to have courage. But actually doing it during those really hard times is a whole different deal. It's kind of like theory versus application. And Pamela and I get go into some strange places that I didn't expect in this interview. And one of them is this idea that we can actually put things or routines into our daily life that force us to be brave so that when hard things come up, we've already done something really hard that day. So I think a lot of runners can relate to this. Maybe they've decided they're going to run three to five miles first thing in the morning. And it's hard to get the shoes on. It's hard to get out there on the road. The first mile does not feel good, but they do it anyway. And then of course they get all the endorphins and feel really great by the end of the run, but it actually has shifted their mindset all day. And so to me, those kind of daily routines, and we didn't talk about running, we talked about the cold water plunge, cold water therapy that many of you probably have heard about on the Huberman podcast and Wim Hof. That's something that nobody wants to get into ice cold water. I mean, I don't know anybody that does, but it is really uncomfortable. But if you commit to it and do it, you increase your courage all day long, because you know you've already done something really, really hard. And this kind of translates into wanting to really look hard stuff right in the eye. And in Pamela's case, she has two sons that became very addicted after their father's death and the grief that they didn't know how to handle. And she really had to get honest and real about what was going on in their family and how to help them. And she tells us in this interview that this took her to a whole nother level of being brave. And I think many of you that have loved someone with an addiction or had an addiction yourself, I think you know what I'm talking about, that the level of bravery required to stay in the game, to deal with the uncertainty, to be waiting for the shoe to drop, to try to find contentment and hope and joy in spite of all of this worry and uncertainty that you have due to the addiction or the loved one with the addiction, man, that is hard work. But through yoga practices, sometimes soothing and comforting and softening and being vulnerable and tender, and other times doing really hard stuff like getting into a cold ice bath every day. Both of those poles are training for being present to really hard things. So even if you haven't had an addiction or you don't know anybody that's had loved ones that really, really had life-threatening addictions that just make your hair stand on its head. I mean, it's really hard as some of you know, I think this talk will still apply to you because you have something hard in your life. You have something you're scared to look at in the eye. You have feelings and emotions and sensations and thoughts that you want to run from and escape from. And 
what Pamela says is that she teaches people, she's a braveologist, which I think is such a cute term. And she teaches other people how to be braveologist. So towards the end of the interview, I was just admitting like, I don't like this. I don't want to have to stand up that tall and be that vulnerable and take the arrow. And every part of me wants to shrink away from that. And yet I know that's not possible in this life if I want to live a full and fulfilling life. And so part of it's just this commitment to decide, yes, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to do hard things. And I'm going to structure my life in a way to practice being brave. And then when those really hard things come up, I will know I can depend on me and my loved ones. So I love this interview, very heartwarming. And I really would love for you to read her book, Conscious Bravery. I'll put it up on the screen for those of you who are watching this on YouTube. I cried when I read the book. It was touching. It was very touching. Conscious bravery, caring for someone with addiction. And again, I think even if you don't know anyone with an addiction that's been really tough, I think this book teaches us just how to face life. So I welcome you to Pamela Brinker, and I hope you enjoyed her as much as I did. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast, and we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Pamela Brinker from Colorado Springs. Thank you for being here, Pamela. It's my joy and pleasure. Thank you for having me, Amy. I just want to start off today just telling our audience a little bit about this story that I read in your new book. This book's been out about a year, but it's just such a, I want to say heart-wrenching book. It's called Conscious Bravery, Caring for Someone with Addiction. So I think just kind of setting the stage is important before we get into the interview. Can you tell us a little bit about your situation with conscious bravery and caring for loved ones? Sure. I had been a psychotherapist for about 20 years when both of my sons turned to substances as the answer to their pain. That was about 12 years ago. And at that time, my deceased husband presently, now he's deceased, but he had just died from grade four glioblastoma brain cancer. Mm. And so my sons were teenagers and we had about just a little over a year to prepare and walk alongside my husband, their stepdad as he passed. But the pain of it hit us all much harder than we expected. And it launched my sons into 
a level of grief that I didn't expect. And they turned to substances to manage their pain, even though we were all close and we turned to each other. And I thought we had open communication. They kept this very secret. And within four years, they were addicted to amphetamines and methamphetamines and since then, they've had up and down struggles with a number of substances, coke, LSD, you know, just basically trying to manage their pain and discomfort. So for me, I've been a practicing psychotherapist for 20 years now, over 30. And what it meant back then was I had to revamp everything I'd ever learned and taught my clients and walked alongside with them and their grief and in their trauma and struggles and had to learn how to use it in different ways for myself. Mm -hmm. I had all these protocols and practices and I'm an integrated psychotherapist. And so I use somatic practices. I use EMDR. I do yoga. I bring in meditation. I bring in everything, nature. <laughs> but I had to relearn how to use those kinds of things for myself. And so it was really a gift and grace that this happened to me and to my family because I never knew the depth of despair a person can feel mm. until both of my sons were just in the throes of not just substance use, but true addiction, true cravings for methamphetamines and amphetamines that are like a compulsive, they have to have them, that kind of thing. I never knew what that was like for a parent or a loved one. It helped so many people with that, but it really meant that I had to practice things that I understood, but I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the beginnings of conscious bravery started. I started putting stuff together and making new graphics for my clients and working things and reworking things and getting a little feedback about what worked the best and doing, again, somatic work with them, which oftentimes yoga asana poses during therapy sessions and starting to apply them for myself. And, you know, in the last, I guess, decade, I have seen people transform their lives like I have never seen. And it's really, truly being a wounded healer and knowing what I know now that I didn't have the depth of experience about before that has truly helped me to heal myself and to continue to reset and heal and then to help others on their paths. I love what you said about you understood, but you didn't really know somatically. That's why yoga and breathing techniques and these more integrative approaches, as you say, are so powerful because there's something to know in your mind. Yes, my clients are suffering. Yes, they're either addicted or caring for someone with addiction. But to feel it in your cells is a completely different lived experience. It's so true. And I have more compassion now than mm -hmm. I ever knew a person could have. So I have to have tools and practices for my self-care because I feel so much more empathy. I've always been an empath. <laughs> you know, I was one of those people in sixth grade that said, mom, I met her at the park. Can she come and stay with us? She needs a place to live, <laughs> you know, but I've just had to have different kinds of boundaries truly. And I hope our listeners can know that Boundaries aren't tough love. Boundaries are things we do for ourselves. That's what I've experienced. And so boundaries are helpful. And I've had to learn to love myself more deeply than ever before, which means being able to relax in ways I never knew were possible. 
I am so able to relax now <laughs> and it's just so delightful to be able to access a level of rest and rejuvenation. I just thought when people talked about it, I was already doing it. I thought, I got that. I know how to do that. I do pranayama. I do my pratyahara. I practice the eight limbs of yoga. I know what samadhi is and I'm still achieving levels of it every day, but I did not know what deep, deep relaxation was until just recent years, really. (laughs) How did you get to that? Because I think so many people think, yeah, I relax. What shifted that you could finally let your nervous system, maybe this is part of the surrendering that you talk about in the book. It is, Amy. I love that you're bringing that up. I talk about assertive surrender because to me, they are the yin and yang. They go together, the darkness and the light. So I had experienced all of this severe, really kind of like harrowing trauma and the depths of panic, you know, wondering, is my son homeless? Is he alive? Oh, I saw him homeless, but then he ran from me. Where is he now? What's happening? He was limping. Is he injured? You know, what's worse than death to me is a head injury or losing limbs, things like that. So I had all those fears and just panic would grip me. And I really finally sought out help from my energy working chiropractor, acupuncturist who's got a lot of skills, just different kinds of therapists who really helped me to be completely transparent with myself and Mm -hmm. see, I am really struggling. I need deep, deep compassion. And what does that mean? What does that look like now? So through exploration, I discovered that sometimes compassion meant rest and a level of rest during meditations and at the end of meditations that meant, oh, I can even let go a little more as I'm breathing. I can even let go a tiny bit more there. And so I did a lot of interoception. Interoception is awareness of our inner workings, you know, where we can actually feel our heartbeat. Maybe we can feel the inside of our left ankle. (laughs) And we have the ability to pinpoint our focus, which is part of the eight limbs of yoga. Through Pratyahara, we turn inward. And then we have this ability through Dharana to concentrate. So I learned how to do that in a way that led me into just a deeper kind of relaxation for minutes at a time. And chunks that really helped me to then rejuvenate and love life more fully. Mm. And that's the beauty of kind of this yin and yang, the surrender, as you're talking about the assertiveness, the assertive surrender, the ability to be fully vibrant and alive. You know, I think we all have that, but it means that we have to be able to know how to relax and rest as well and everything in between. (laughs) I just find that so ironic. And I agree with you that Mm. I am not fully alive and present and loving life unless I have a practice that involves rest and yoga nidra. In fact, right before this interview, I wanted to be alive and present with you and focused. So I did a 30 minute yoga nidra. Love it. No, fantastic. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And I love beautiful practices, yoga nidra, being in nature, that sort of thing. But also you asked, how else did I come to this? Mm -hmm. And I don't talk about it in depth in the book. 
conscious bravery, but I do talk about having magical flexibility. And Mm -hmm. to me, having that magical flexibility that we want in our asana and we want emotionally and mentally comes from doing some really tough things like death practices. Mm -hmm. So I do death meditation practices as well as vibrant, awake, alive. Here I am gathering and releasing and I'm connecting to source and the universe. I also do lying down full corpse pose. Okay, I'm going to die to everything that I long for. I still want it. I'm still going to work toward it. It doesn't mean that I can't do that. I can't still have a mission and a purpose and desires for my sons and so forth who've struggled greatly. But I want to release that attachment and say, okay, I'm dying to what just was. And I'm helpless over a lot of the control over these things. That yin and yang, that ability to be fully vibrantly awake and alive and the ability to die to who we were and to the previous moment, those are such crucial things that are integral in conscious bravery. Yeah. Again, it's ironic that we may feel most alive when we detach and let go of the longings. I think it's an interesting juxtaposition. Most people, if they wanted to feel more alive, they would go out and seek out awe-inspiring, expansive things, right? So it's, it's a really nice contemplation, I think, the pairs of opposites and how going in one direction can actually enliven the opposite direction. So true. Yes, and you talked about things I do and how do I integrate yoga into my practice. Over time, certain things just evolved and I'm raising one arm and lowering the other because to me, Tadasana always seemed like it was missing something, you know, either facing the mountain this way or facing the mountain with arms up in the air. And it always seemed to me that I wanted to greet with hands at heart center myself and those with whom I was practicing. But I also want to greet God in the universe, the Tao, the infinite, while at the same time I'm anchoring in the earth. Mm. And so I do this practice and I teach in workshops and so forth called Earth and Sky. I don't know, maybe somebody else has come up with it, but I call it Earth and Sky (laughs) or 5D, 3D Tadasana. So the fifth dimension connecting through heart center and through our bodies to the 3D, this third dimension on which we live. And so we're connecting to the sky and the earth or the universe and the ground. And it's really grounding, but it's also enlivening and expanding. So that's a practice that I love that evolved from working with clients and also from my own need to be able to be two places at once. (laughs) You said that to my husband the other day, he was going through a really hard time. And I said, you know, honey, it's okay to spiritually bypass for a few days to give yourself a break from this. It's okay to just go up into the ether for a little bit and connect with source to bring down some ability to stay in your body and deal with this really hard stuff. And, you know, you might call that a spiritual bypass or you might call that gaining energy from source to allow you to be human again. Mm, I love that way you said that. And what a beautiful being you are to him. And I'm sure he is to you. And I wouldn't call that spiritual bypassing. To me, spiritual bypassing is avoiding. And avoidance takes a heck of a lot of energy. (laughs) It's like denial. It just catches up to us later. But what you're asking for and encouraging him to do to me is allowing what is, right? 
allow what is right now for this moment. It'll change. That's the beautiful thing about feelings and thoughts. They come and then they go. Yeah. And the way you described, you know, sky and earth, you said they kind of meet in the middle in your body. And I always picture that even with respect to all the different chakras that the heart center is kind of where they all meet. And one of the things that really stood out in your book, when you were telling the story of your son and how he had to be almost forcibly removed, taken to wilderness camp to kind of recalibrate his system and get back on track. You said, love is the key. Love is where it's at. And I think that's very cliche, but after reading your book, I know there is real depth there for you. So tell us about that, where the heaven and the earth meet is in this human body and in this human heart. What does love mean to you? Mm. Love is the fiercest force. Love to me is a tenderness and an empowerment, and it does reside in places It resides in our hearts, which are very close to our solar plexus, which is the source of our beingness. Our essence is somewhere in this place. Most of my clients and friends, when I ask, where do you think your essence is? And they say, it's usually right near my heart or my solar plexus. So love is in our bodies, but love is in this connection, this authentic connection that you and I are having Mm. and our listeners are having with us. That's an element of love as well, because love can be open-hearted, open-eared, listening, receptive, and that's a force. So that's why I say love is the fiercest force, because to me, nothing good, nothing Mm -hmm. great happens unless love is behind it. And that's what enabled me to, you know, as you talk about, have my son transported to the wilderness therapy experience that our family had agreed and he had agreed he would go to. And that just to help listeners understand why a parent would do that. He had gotten himself into such a terrible, terrible place that we feared for his life. It was really life or death. He'd run away from home. He'd found a motel to stay in paying for it with the $2 coins I had given him every year as a child growing up. So he'd pulled Mm -hmm. together these, I'd given him more than just on his birthday. So he had a whole bag full of $2 coins and he'd gotten a room at some little motel and had run away from home to avoid facing his consequences of what had happened. And what had happened is he had used substances so often and severely his judgment had been clouded and he'd taken a bottle of Jack Daniels at the age of 15 and a half, I guess he was at the time. Yeah. He'd taken them to his high school and gotten another girl and himself so drunk that she had to be rushed to the hospital. Mm. And that's where I, as a parent said, I can't be a part of allowing this to happen. He's going to not only hurt others, which Mm. he unwantedly, he didn't know that was going to happen. No one wants to be so addicted to substances that you would do a thing like that, right? That had happened. And I felt for her and her family so tremendously, but I also felt for him in his future. If that happened once, that could happen again. So wilderness therapy, it's a place where you don't have screens, you don't have phones, iPads, nothing. You write letters to your parents. Your parents are very, very involved in your own healing. And it was a family healing event. But he's out there alone, just to be clear. And you're at home writing him letters. Right. Yes. Well, he was out there with a team of two field guides and seven other 
young men in the wilderness in southern Colorado, going from place to place, making their own shelters, bringing their own food on their packs. They had 45 pound packs carrying them around. They really grew up. It was a coming of age event for him. He really learned in three months what it meant to be a young man and learn how to start a fire with just a kit, flint and wood. I mean, they took them down to the very basics, but it was really life transformational for him and for all of us. And a lot of awareness began back then. And yeah. You know, you say on page 110 of your book, it just like jumped off the page. You said, we don't have the luxury of despair. I have friends and family that have gone through exactly this with their addicted children. Mm. There was a lot of despair. I think Mm. everyone just is kind of waiting for something bad to happen. And it's such a horrible feeling to have your loved ones needing this type of intervention. But what do you mean by that? We don't have the luxury of despair. Mm. Well, first, my heart goes out to you and anyone listening. If you've had this happen to you, my whole heart is with you. And if you haven't had this happen to you, be prepared because mental health challenges or substance use issues and addiction will come your way. You know, everyone thinks, oh, not me, not now, but it's just going to happen. It's so common. And it's a mental health issue. It's a disease. At any rate, I really borrowed that from, or I got that originally from Cheryl Strayed. When I first read it in her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, I realized I am waking up in fight, flight, flee mode every day. And I'm staying in it constantly. I'm having to reset so often. I'm feeling panicked. My adrenals are firing. I was wondering what was going to happen to my sons. You know, when the phone would ring, my heart would drop. I would wait for what I thought at the time was better news. And sometimes better news didn't come. You know, it was only harder news. Like, oh, now they have this diagnosis or Han, it's more than ADHD. They are having psychotic symptoms. We want to try this medication. Hopefully they'll come out of it. You know, hard, hard things. And so to say to myself often, I don't have the luxury of despair. I choose to stand on a foundation of contentment. And I am going to be this tall tree that can bring hope. If I can't do it, how are they going to figure it out? So I don't have the luxury of despair as a parent or as a therapist. It's my job as a parent and a therapist to contain my stuff so that I can be with you, my loved one, my client, so that I can support them and hold space for their pain. And how can I do that? I have to live what what I hope for. (laughs) I have to be that hope, you know, so I can be an oasis for them. So I believe in fully embracing all of our emotion and then letting it move through us. Because if I stay stuck in panic, I'm just going to hurt my own health. And my sons are going to look at me and go, yeah, right. How am I ever going to get off substances if you can't deal with this? You know, I've got to be able to. And so I choose to commit to happiness and to protect my happiness with my life, really. And so every day it's a practice and a commitment and a privilege to return to happiness, to return to love and stand on that foundation of contentment. I like what you said that it's not that you're not suffering. I mean, again, you're not doing a spiritual bypass. You're feeling it. You're waking up in fight, flight, freeze, all of it. And 
let it move through you through your somatic practices and breathing and meditation and come back to okay here's the contentment or the santosha that i want to move through life with and i just think it's a total mindset training i mean many mornings i wake up feeling anxious and i just have to say okay you're anxious move through that and then do your practices and then come back to who do I want to be today? How do I want to show up in the world? It takes a lot to keep doing that day after day. That's powerful. And it's beautiful. Love yeah. that you're bringing that up. I have bravery keys. Mm. So at the end of each chapter is a bravery key, but it is a little bite, a little bite of bravery. <laughs> and one of them near the end of the book is we can live from wonder and joy instead of despair through conscious bravery. And it's exactly what you just mentioned. We practice and we reset and we recommit because there's just so much despair in the world and we can experience it every day. And it's really brave, I would say, and courageous to choose to stand in the light and let the dark be the shadow. You know, mm -hmm. I believe in embracing the shadow. I have union training that I integrate into my work. Carl Jung talked about the shadow and embracing the shadow and being aware of our shadow. So we want to know our disowned parts, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and we want to bring them in and integrate them, but we still want to be able to return to the light and we have to really to help one another. And so my mission isn't just to help myself and my family, and my clients, it's to be present with whomever I meet, whether it's someone that just got their first job after being homeless, or they're still finding their way, or the checkout person at King Supers. I want to be present with everyone that I connect with. Mm -hmm. That to me is a part of finding hope and not living with despair because presence is such a way to bring bravery into our lives. To be fully present takes guts. <laughs> and tenderness, right? A combination of not just strength, but also that ability to be compassionate, which is a form of strength. And how do we become more comfortable living in that state of vulnerability? I mean, I think so many of us have spent an entire lifetime trying to build a wall not to feel vulnerable. Great question. I have a chapter in the book called Become Comfortable with Discomfort. And many of the people that we love, our teachers talk about this, write about it, Pema Chodron, learning to live with discomfort and uncomfortability. But it's a real practice. I believe that we've got to integrate it into our lives every day. And so I notice when I'm uncomfortable, even in a conversation over the phone or just a flicker of agitation might arise in me, in my whole being. So you talked about mindset. Sometimes those kinds of things happen in our minds. Sometimes they happen in our emotion or our heart. Sometimes they happen in our energy field. We have a disruption in the energy either surrounding us or in the space that we share with someone else. So being aware of that helps me to know, okay, here's a moment, a little moment of agitation or discomfort. I'm going to be with it. I'm just going to notice it and tend to it. And I can move through this if I allow it. But the allowing and the accepting of it and saying, huh, now there's this. Here's this, this discomfort is a way to do it. So I teach, say to yourself, huh, now there's this. Or say, hmm, I'm noticing. Oh, okay. 
this is here. And it doesn't mean it's going to last forever, though we want to perpetuate it by feeding it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just means that we're accepting it like we would our best friend who's coming up to us and saying, I'm really struggling. We wouldn't disown her or detach. We would be present. So we want to be present with our own discomfort. And it becomes such a practice that I even see that we can become more comfortable with overwhelm Mm. and with catastrophe. So when catastrophe arrives, we can say, oh my gosh, here it is. The thing I feared. Wow. All right. Breathing and grounding, breathing into it, breathing into my being remembering who I am. I'm not the situation. I'm not the circumstance. I am this me, this essence, this person I've been from before birth and through life and always will be. I can take this on. I'll figure this out. So those kinds of affirmations are super helpful, but not in and of themselves. They have to be embodied. You know, Mm -hmm. I really believe affirmations are helpful tools, but only when we let them become a part of us. And so I teach moving mantras as well. Mm -hmm. We might want to say, okay, I'll figure this out. And so we ground and we walk around our house or place of work and we say, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm right here. It's okay. I'm right here. Whatever affirmation we want to believe we can embody. And those kinds of things are absolutely, there's no price you can put on that kind of ability to handle discomfort because it may be one of the best tickets into joy. I want to follow up on the joy thing, but <laughs> yeah, let's keep on this thread for a moment before sure. we go there. What are the common barriers that keep people from being able to do this. Okay. I'm here. I'm now the catastrophe has struck. I can get through this. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to find my essence. I'm going to remember that I'm eternal. Like what are some of the barriers that stop people? Because I would say most people can't do that. Mm -hmm. They get overwhelmed with emotion and negative thinking and allostatic load, frankly, you know, Mm -hmm. come into a situation with already high allostatic load, the chances that we're able to work through these things are much less. So what would you say are some of the barriers that are preventing people from being consciously brave? Mm -hmm. The barriers, habit, Mm. lack of awareness. We're not consciously aware of our habits. How can we change them? They don't just haphazardly shift out of luck or good fortune. They change consciously because we put one foot in front of the other and we do the harder thing. We do the more tender thing and we start breaking patterns. And so, for example, if I have a habit of worrying, I might be very comfortable with that habit because it might feel kind of empowering. So awareness helps me to know, uh, you know, I think that that's empowering, but it's really not. Or clients I've worked with who have big anger issues. Anger can feel like a force. It can feel like, oh, I can talk this person into what I need them to do or what I want them to do. Or I can get this person to kind of shrink a little bit if I'm angry at them. But really, if we're aware, we notice uh, bullying and anger and worry, anxiety, panic, these are more harbingers than they are tools. They are little wake-up calls that make us pay attention, in other words, voices. 
to maybe get our attention to help us learn other tools that work much better. And so, as you were saying, all these things that we do become barriers when we're not aware that they're barriers. Mm. And even if we are aware that they're barriers, I would say another way out is commitment. All of the clients I've ever worked with and people in my workshops who actually change do the harder thing. They make structure their friend. (laughs) And so they change their habits because they're putting different things in place every single day, whether they want to or not. So any of you who've ever been an athlete or a musician, you understand you show up at practice, you show up to play your instrument, whether you feel like it or not. And pretty soon you're ready to do it. Pretty soon you kind of like it or you find something you like about it if you can have that outlook. And so we commit to change. And another way we move past these barriers in regard to change is we make friends with change. Instead Mm -hmm. of sitting on our comfy spot saying, okay, I got this now. Ah, that finally happened. Yes, I've got this great job. Or now my son is in recovery. Woohoo! I'm resting easy. We can rest and enjoy that, sure, and savor that, saturate ourselves in that joy. And simultaneously, we can say, I still got to do the work. Every day, I'm still going to show up in readiness, practicing discomfort, bringing fear along with me, making friends with fear as an advisor, and then dropping, letting fear move through me and choosing to live with pain, but not suffering. You know, choosing to live with awareness of fear, but not being succumbed to fear. So let's go to chapter nine, where you say fear is an advisor. I mean, I think this is such an interesting idea because we get stuck on the fear or we get stuck on the anger and we don't really understand, which is what you're saying is just a messenger Mm -hmm. to go back and look inward. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of fear as an advisor? I love talking about our advisors because we have many. So this comes from parts work in therapy, if you're familiar with that. But fear is just one of many emotions that comes into us in our service. Mm -hmm. It comes to tell us something like, pay attention, watch out, or this could happen, as if we didn't already know it could happen, we're reminded. But it comes, I think, not just to say this could happen, but But hey, what you going to do? Because fear isn't going to figure it out. Fear resides in the part of our brainstem that we like to call the reptilian brain, or it attaches to the sympathetic nervous system, which makes us want to fight or flee or fawn and please someone or curl up in a ball and feign death, right? So fear resides in this temporary place in our bodies that tends to be at the brainstem to help us shift so that we can make a better decision. The newest research, I love this in the last 10 years, shows that we can rewire our brains and we can reconfigure our nervous systems. They're not the boss of us. They don't make the calls and we're not stuck with that, right? This really, Wim Hof gets a lot of credit for this and people like Stephen Porges and Bessel van der Kolk in their work on trauma. You know, Wim Hof, before he even knew why getting in the cold water was helping him, he was rewiring his nervous system. And any of you who don't know about Wim Hof, he's famous for his Wim Hof style of breathing, uplifting breathing. He's set about 25 Guinness world records for being in the cold, hiking Mount Everest in shorts, all these things. But it's not just him. He doesn't want to be a guru. He tells all of us, you can do these things too. You can build resiliency. 
It takes focus, it takes commitment. And so to me, circling back to fear, I am very focused and aware of when I feel fear. I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things I'm not good at and a lot of things that I'm still working very, very hard on. But one thing I do know is when I'm feeling fear because I tune into all the six zones of my experience. I tune into my thinking often. I turn into my heart often. I try to be aware of all these zones of my experience. So the six zones are your thoughts, your feelings, your heart, your body, your intuition, the energy zone around you, the energy space, and then your deepest core self, your essence. And so the way I handle fear is I listen to data that's coming in, you know, bing, 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 watch out from any of these zones. And sometimes it's coming from my intuition and it might say, watch out, don't trust that person. And sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not, but I listen, I do listen. Sometimes it's coming from my thoughts, like, oh, this has happened before and my thoughts are already leaping to this other thing will happen again if you don't make a change. But I try to just notice neutrally, oh, that's fear talking. My thoughts aren't true. My thoughts are just thoughts, they're just data. My emotions aren't necessarily true. They're going to pass and change. The truest thing I know is my essence and that I'm alive, that I can be present. So being aware of fear helps me to come back into presence, breathe through that alert that I'm receiving from whatever zone. And then I can breathe into a place of solidity and ground down. And then I can operate more from the prefrontal cortex and realign and make a decision about what I'll do. And to me, that's conscious bravery in a nutshell. It's really having the awareness to do whatever is needed in any given moment. And so when we're consciously brave, we can handle fear differently. I agree with all that you're saying that it really is a decision that I'm going to attend to my fear and do it anyway. And, you know, regarding cold water therapy, I hate cold water. It is like my arch enemy my whole life. But last week we were in Canada with the family and my brother and my niece, they were getting in the cold lake. And so I said, you know what, this is a chance to just not like something and do it anyway. And so I did it day after day with them. And I felt so good afterwards. It kind of reset my vagus nerve and all of that. But I think one of the biggest things I discovered with that, and I've been getting in a cold bathtub since I got home, was that it's something I don't want to do. I may even fear, you know, like, oh, it's going to feel horrible. But once I do it, I feel so, I don't think powerful is the word, but I feel like, yeah, I can deal with hard stuff today. Nothing is going to be as hard as getting in that cold bathtub at 5 (laughs) a.m. It kind of built, I don't know, I'm feeling it's building my bravery muscle somehow. What do you think of that? Yes. Oh, I love that you're saying that because I do talk about flexing our bravery muscles and I love cold water immersion. And I'm a huge believer in it for about 20 reasons. I have a list on the notes in my phone that I send people. The Huberman Lab podcast is one of the best sources because there's so much data available through Huberman about all the reasons to do cold water immersion. And you're talking about several of the major reasons. A, because it boosts our dopamine for four to six hours. Four to six hours is the research. I just listened to a woman who's written a book called Winter Swimming, Soderbergh, and she researched 
the effects of dopamine because of cold water plunging and other people have done this too. And so it's not just EBGB cool stuff. Like I feel good. I feel alive that too. <laughs> it does make us feel more awake and alert, but it actually, with most things we like boost our dopamine from minutes to an hour, things mm -hmm. like whatever people like, you know, sex, if it's alcohol, getting on your phone, getting good news, whatever it is, eating something that you love, chocolate, a workout, those kinds of things boost our dopamine for a period of time. But the cool research about cold water immersion is that if you do it for even just 11 minutes per week in little two minute segments per day, now I do more and a lot of people do, I like to do five minutes a day, it boosts dopamine for four to six hours, which means that we think more clearly, we can handle anxiety better, we can do hard things. So that's the B of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. If we can do tough stuff like get in freaking freezing cold water, <laughs> we can do just about anything. And it's beautiful because it does translate, transfer over into the emotional arena. Does it get easier or is it always like, yeah, that's going to feel really horrible. I'm doing it anyway. You know, that's a great question. It does get easier, I think, because of the structure. That's why I do it every single day. I haven't missed a day since I started because to me, I just don't want to miss a day. I don't miss a day of drinking water. So why would I miss a day of something that boosts my immune system, lowers inflammation, increases my metabolism, makes me think more clearly, makes me feel more vibrant and alive, helps me know God in the universe better. I'm in touch with oneness. It's like an asana. It, all it sounds so great. I'm here to tell our listeners it's really hard. <laughs> yes, it there's, is hard, but there's all know, those benefits, but it is so hard. I don't know. Maybe I'm a wimp. <laughs> oh, you're not a wimp, Amy. I've been a thin person my entire life. And I've always been a swimmer and always the last person out of the shower because I was like, <laughs> you know, like in the shock phase of having the chills. And really, I've learned that that's what the chills on that level is. It's a pre-program from my ancestry to just not like the cold. So I just decided I've been a Colorado girl forever and I've been a skate ski racer. And so I've skate skied in the 10 below. So why can't I just gradually work up to cold water immersion? So you did it the hard way, just going in the cold lake, which is great. I encourage people, if you don't like the cold, you're one of a bazillion people who don't like the cold. I didn't either, but I worked up to it with cool water showers for 30 seconds for a week. And then I would linger longer. So it was 45 seconds in the cool water shower. Then I would put the temperature a little lower to finally, after it must've been a month, I was finally down to the coldest temperature in the shower and doing it for two minutes. And then I said, okay, now I'm ready for a cold plunge and bought a cold plunge pool that we keep at a certain temperature that's pretty chilly, but not too chilly. It's around 50, I might as well say, because I don't think I have to do it at 40 or whatever. What I'm but doing. 50 is freezing. It's super Wonderful. cold. You put your hand in that and it feels like, Ooh, just hearing so about I just it. set my little buzzer and hop in and, and you always gasp initially because it's just a bodily response. But now I'm able to breathe through it in the same way I breathe through panic and anxiety. And I settle down in 20 to 30 seconds. And then I'm looking at the trees and feeling synergy with nature. And to me, it's like I said, it is an asana. I move my body around in the water. I put my face in the water. Oh, the rosacea I had is almost gone. Mm. I had rosacea, which is a thing older people get in case you younger people don't know. <laughs> you know, you can get over time. It's just like little red blood vessels showing on your face. Oh. 
I don't have it anymore because I've put my face in the cold water for 12 to 15 seconds, about four times during the duration of that five minutes as well. But it lowers blood pressure. I feel great. I feel better than I felt when I was 50 and I'm 62. So, wow. (laughs) I can't promise I'll keep doing it, but I think like anything hard, the more often you do it and just say, okay, this is a decision I've made. We're not going to overthink this. We're not going to question this. This is what we do. And then, like you said, it probably becomes easier, although I'm not there yet. Oh, I think you'll get there if you commit to it. Commitment is the key to anything. Commitment is what conscious bravery is about. If we don't commit to becoming more consciously brave, it's not going to happen magically. I love to say that bravery does not occur with the wave of a magic wand. That's the thing I want to tell people. And I think some people could say this comes from a place of privilege that we even have the bandwidth in our life to take on such a commitment. And that may be true, but I would also argue that for those of us who in the past or even now don't have any bandwidth, it might even be more important to commit to being consciously brave because life gets harder if you don't do it. That's brilliant and absolutely true. If the hard times, the really, really tough, harrowing, tragic times have not come into your life yet, they will. So you might as well just love life into it and do it while it's a little easier. I really learned kind of the harder way after my husband had passed because I thought I had a bunch of tools and practices at the ready. Mm. But boy, I just kind of got slammed to the ground and had such despair and anxiety and just had to change my life. But you know, I should say to this point that we're talking about that part of bravery that I achieved and part of what I do in the cold water is tenderness. Mm. I'm loving myself. I'm tender with myself because I'm saying, oh, this is hard. I'm gonna do it anyway. (laughs) And I do that, I hug myself with compassion, physically putting, my arms around myself sometimes when things are really hard. And I say, oh, dear one, this is really tough for you right now. You're going to get through it. Interesting that we got on this cold water kick, but the similarities between immersing yourself in cold water and just deciding to be present with something really, really damn hard. There's so many parallels there. You got it. Most people run, like you said, a lot of people can't deal with it. And they run in one of many ways. You know, they run through avoidance or denial. These are where we came up with the defense mechanisms. We project onto someone else. Oh, I didn't feel that. So I'll just yell at my dog or whatever. Or we intellectualize. We do any number of things. We use substances to try to take the edge off. But really to be able to face whatever is means that we're the kind of friend somebody else wants to have because we're going to walk alongside them unconditionally. And that's what we want to be for ourselves. It's just going to say we're the friend that we need to have for ourselves Mm -hmm. to trust ourselves enough to be brave. I love the way you said that to know we can count on ourselves. I know I can count on me. And, And I would encourage anyone who's listening to know if you've been through tough things, try to remind yourself of that. You've done tough stuff before. And again, another thing I write about and say is that conscious bravery isn't always tough as nails. Bravery can look like softness and it can sound like stillness. 
So back to what I was talking about in the beginning with relaxation, sometimes the most brave thing I can do is be silent and hold faith. I love that because I think when I hear the word bravery, I think of it as more forceful and more masculine and I'm going to get this done and that might be needed sometimes, but sometimes to go tender, vulnerable, slow down, feel more is just as difficult. Absolutely. And I have so many friends who maybe don't call me until after they're through the tough thing. Mm -hmm. And so to me, another component or branch on the tree of conscious bravery is asking for help. And I know that you weren't prompting me to talk about this, but it just occurred to me as you were speaking that we really want to be brave by seeing help as a sacred exchange. You know, we give help and we receive it. And one is not better or more important than the other. The strongest people I know are willing to receive help. And the ones who have an outwardly strong appearance, but really this conscious bravery is not happening inside of them, will not and cannot receive help. Sadly, Mm -hmm. we are the ones who need it. Mm -hmm. So Pamela, as we close here, I know that this book, Conscious Bravery, is the first in a three-part series. And now I have to know, are two more books coming out after this? (laughs) So what are they about? (laughs) That's what I wrote about in the beginning, Amy, but I'm not sure. Right now, I'm just sticking with this story and we'll see because I decided I needed to take the pressure off of myself as well. Mm -hmm. And so right now, I'm just focusing on really teaching these tools and practices. If people want to know more, you can go to my website where I have some worksheets and I have more information. I have a YouTube channel that's at Pamela Brinker on YouTube, where I've got little short videos, two minute videos about conscious bravery and just little tools to build resilience. And some of the practices, the somatic practices that I teach, like earth and sky, gather and release. So for the people who are watching this on YouTube, our Optimal State YouTube channel, I've brought up Pamela's website, which is www.pamelabrinker.com. B-R-I-N-K-E-R.com. And I just love your website. I just think it's really, really well done. I am a braveologist. (laughs) I'm passionate about helping you to become one too. Oh my gosh. That's so amazing. (laughs) Thank you. I think everyone can become a braveologist, which is basically we study and practice bravery. You know, just even hearing that, it makes me cringe, but it's the only way forward. Like, I don't know, somehow I have to get over this thing in my mind that there's some other way. I know. Isn't that what we all do? Can't I just love bigger and better? Can I just be a creature of peace? But the way into peace is through the tough stuff. We have to be able to go through the tunnel and be present and awake and aware and not run, not flee, you know, be with it, but also not stay stuck in the trenches, come up for air and live vibrantly. So that's why I really truly believe we can live vibrant, happy lives and we must. Mm, I love that. Mm. Well, thank you for coming today. It's been so nice to talk to a soul sister that I'm just meeting for the first time, but I love your book. I think even people who are not a caretaker of someone with addiction, which is kind of the theme of the book, the themes that run through your book 
are so applicable to anyone who needs to be more brave. And as you said, this mental health crisis, the new pandemic is going to touch every single one of us sooner or later. Thank you so much. Yes. Some of the reviews people just beautifully and graciously written on the Amazon book page have written that is a book for everyone because it really is practices that I've taught all of my clients, no matter what issue they've brought to the table. Yeah. So thank you for that. You're so loving and gracious. And yes, you're a soul sister too. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this interview with Pamela. And one of the things that I've thought about for a really, really long time is this idea we don't have the luxury of despair. You know, I look at certain communities throughout all of time and history that have had really, really unfathomable things happen to their communities, whether you look at the Jewish community or those people who have endured slavery. We could give lots of different examples. And I've always thought, how did they do it? How did they not give up? How did they not collapse? How have they come out the other side being stronger, knowing themselves, feeling confident in themselves, feeling even better than before the tragedies that happened? It's almost, I can't understand it, but I think this explains it. We do not have the luxury of despair. So that's something I'd like to leave you all with. I think some of us who have privilege in the world, we can allow ourselves that luxury of despair. I don't know if that's because we have so much comfort and therefore we can go there and wallow in it a little bit, but I'd like to challenge all of us to start thinking that way, that no, you can feel it, you can move it through you, you can do somatic practices, you can talk to friends and get empathy, but at the end of the day, you don't have the luxury to give up. And the only way forward is through hope and joy and being a strong pillar for yourself, your family, and others. I think if we come into it knowing that, yes, we get to process emotions, but in the end, I'm going to stand up and be a brave person and I'm going to do it and I'm going to face life. If you've already made that decision, when you start, it's a very different experience of being alive. So that's my challenge to us is to just decide that that's the kind of person we're going to be. We're going to have conscious bravery and we're going to do what we need to do, giving up some of our comforts in order to show up that way. And for me, this whole cold water bath thing, there is no part of me that ever wants to do that ever again. But there's also this little part of me that says exactly why you should be doing it, honey. (laughs) Get out of your comfort zone every day. So I'm not making any promises to any of you because I don't want you to see me in a year and be like, are you doing it? There's a chance I won't, but I really think it's possible that I should, and I need to contemplate that. So we're talking about intentions. We're talking about contemplation. Doesn't mean we have to do it, but I think we have to think about doing it. That's the first step. And that's where I'm at. And that's what I'm asking you to do also. All right, everyone have a great week. And I really 
love sharing these interviews with you every week. I hope you enjoy them too. And again, we have a Monday night yoga therapy clinic and we have every month has a different theme. You can go to www.amywheeler.com and the ones that are coming up in July are emotional eating. And then we have some one month on anxiety, one month on depression. We have past series on chronic low back pain and neck pain. So if you're interested in being part of a sangha that kind of works through a topic together over one month, we'd love to have you as part of our family. All right. Thank you. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.